Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. I had planned to start a two-week Christmas series next week entitled The Mystery, The Wondrous Mystery of God Incarnate. But today's sermon really has become part one of three because Peter is speaking of God incarnate, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 18 through 22 of 1 Peter 3 in a moment. And verse 18 says, He, Christ, was put to death in the flesh. He is speaking of God in the flesh. Jesus, the God-man, who, without ceasing to be what he always was, God, became what he was not, man. And he is always now the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. And by the way, you're probably thinking, well, 1 Peter 3 is kind of a non-Christmassy Christmas passage. It's not even a Christmas passage. But what I want you to see is that so often we, we, we relegate Christmas to, you know, Matthew 1 and Luke 2, which we'll go there in the next couple weeks. But what we don't see is the truth of Christmas and Easter the birth of God incarnate and and the death of Christ in our place for our sins. We don't see that as an everyday occurrence. We, We see it as a season. We see it as something to celebrate at a certain time. And What I want you to see is how important the incarnation is over these next three weeks, really. Starting today in this passage and then going on into Matthew 1 next week. Why is the wondrous mystery of God incarnate so crucial for professing believers? Why is it so important? It ought to make a huge difference in your life, in your household, in your work, in every area of your life. How you see how God brings about the greatest good out of seemingly shocking circumstances and what he inspires and empowers us to do in response. So I would ask you to stand with your Bibles open I'm going to read 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. What I want you to see here is what God wants you to see. He wants you to see a greater purpose by focusing on His greatest purpose accomplished via suffering. All of us are suffering. He wants you to see His glorious purpose was accomplished through Christ's suffering, and therefore He is going to accomplish His greatest purposes in your life through your suffering. Before I read, I need to also warn you that this passage contains two theologically tricky parts. And we're going to look at these today. What, what does he mean when he says that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? And what is he saying when he says baptism now saves you? People have wrestled for years over the meaning of these verses. I'm going to address both today, but most of all, I cannot wait to point you to the glorious, wonderful gospel truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what this passage is really all about. It's not about mysterious sayings. It's not about puzzling things. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did, what he is doing, and what he will do. So 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. Lord, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would see your grace that that changes hearts, that moves hearts, that we would see your magnificent glory that goes far beyond what can be seen. Lord God, we pray that you would be honored in us and through us today, and we pray in Christ's name, amen. So what is a manger or a feeding trough in first century Bethlehem have to do with Christmas lights and Christmas trees and gift giving? Did anyone bring their gifts today? We're not doing gift giving today? We're going to wait a little while for that? Okay. Well, we've got the Christmas tree, we've got the lights, and we've got all these, you know, the trappings of Christmas are kind of all around us. What does the manger, the that Jesus was put in what is the real what does the Bible story have to do with all the things that we see around us at Christmas time we could make painful analogies we could force them many people do we could look for symbolism where a lot of people find a huge chasm or we could take the road less traveled and that's what I want us to do to speak truthfully and clearly and often of the truth of God in Christ as revealed in his holy word. It still stands, it will stand forever, and the incarnation will stand as the singular most important event of all time. By the way, the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, is routinely rejected by many professing believers people who profess faith in Christ and are now saying, well, the Bible is a dated book. It's out of date. It it doesn't really speak to where we live today. And, And wow, that's a good story, but it really didn't happen. If this didn't happen, we have no, we have no hope. There's Christmas trappings all around. There's diversions. There's distractions. You know, sidetracks all around. You could be looking at squirrels all day long. It's so easy, especially at Christmas season or at at Easter time. These aren't just seasons. Biblically speaking, these aren't just holiday times. This is a lifelong, daily, monthly, yearly, moment-by-moment focus for a Christian. Every day we should be thinking about the birth of Christ 
and the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the glory of Christ all the time. How could God become man, we ask? How could God become man? I mean, the, the song we sang this week and last, it's a beautiful song, but how could it be that, that we could hold God in our hands? That's a time-bound song. Mary held God in her hands. We don't. But how could it be that this could happen? The answer is very simple. God can do it because he's God and he did just that and he didn't co-opt the customs of his day. He made his own way. This was the way God chose and it was chosen before the foundation of the world. He was ramping up the process of reconciling all things to himself and at the fullness of the time, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, God incarnate. Wayne Grudem says that the incarnation is the, by far the most amazing miracle in the Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. Those are biggies. The incarnation is bigger. The fact that the, the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man is going to remain for eternity the most profound miracle, the most profound mystery that the world has ever seen in all the universe. The incarnation. Charles Wesley said it well. In one of his songs, there's a line, and it goes like this. I love it. Our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. I want you to see, God wants you to see how the wondrous mystery of God incarnate makes all the difference for a professing believer. It'll make all the difference in your life, in your family, in your work, in your, in your recreation, in every aspect, in your ministry. Absolutely. All year long. Not just at Christmas. Again, it's one of the most rejected doctrines by professing believers. I, you hear me say this a lot now. Professing believers. People profess to have faith in Christ. It doesn't mean they're saved. It is the most essential doctrine. How did John Wesley put it? John Wesley, the relative of Charles Wesley, he's on his deathbed. And his family is around him. He takes his hands and puts them in theirs and holds their hands and he kept saying to them, farewell, farewell. And then he mustered up every ounce of strength he had left and he said these words, the best of all is God with us. He repeated it. The best of all is God with us. Dr. Andy Nacelli, a seminary professor in Minneapolis, says that one test of biblical faithfulness is that our arguments rise to the same questions and objections as the original authors. So for example, you know you're being faithful to the word of God when you present God's lavish grace in such a way that someone might respond to you, what then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace might increase? As Paul said in Romans 6.1. 
or that we should present God's sovereignty in such a way that the natural response sounds like, is there injustice with God? Is Romans 9.14. To put it another way, worship leader Ryan Shelton put it this way, we sometimes try to smooth out what the Bible gave us as jagged. We want to smooth all the, the jagged edges. We want to round the corners. We want everything to be palatable for people. And what he says is, not everything in Scripture was meant to be easy to swallow. And the incarnation is at the top of the list. You say, I can't understand how this could happen. You say, it sounds almost ridiculous. How about the fact that God really did it? That sounds ridiculous to a lot of people. What did Paul say? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. That the, the man's wisdom that he can muster up all on his own is like as if God was foolish, God's foolishness would be higher. Shelton says, perhaps some of us have been bored into a kind of pseudo-Christianity that doesn't retain the thrill and the wonder of the staggering realities of God's greatness. God wants to restore or give you a, a thrill and wonder at the staggering realities of God's greatness in the, in the, in the incarnation, in the life of Christ, in the death of Christ, in, in, the, in the resurrection of Christ, in, in the exaltation of Christ. He wants to, to, to thrill your soul with the glorious truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified, risen, and coming again. It's what God wants to do in your heart. We sit here and, and we come in from all avenues of life. We've been through all sorts of things. We did all sorts of things last night and the day before and, and the week before and, and some of those things are, are good and some of those things are not and, and, and we're some of us need a defibrillator for our souls. There's these certain things that when you hear them, they just sound ridiculous, don't they? That we could hold God in our hands. The fact that Mary did, it's undisputed. People could say whatever they want. The word of God says it, I believe it. I, I hope you do too. Too many Christians are saying, well, I don't believe the Bible anymore. They've got nothing. They're crazy. They're lost. They're deceived. Today and every day, especially today as we consider Christ's victory and his power and his authority, God wants to, to reignite your soul around bedrock foundational truth that shouldn't be seasonal at all. Every day should be a part of your life. The point of this passage today, I've mentioned it, it, ha it happens to be that God's glorious purpose was accomplished through Christ's sufferings. And that as Peter was writing to these 
believers that were suffering, he's telling them, he's encouraging them, he's, he's exhorting them and saying, you know what? What you're going through, what you're going through, God is going to accomplish his purpose through your suffering. Whatever you brought in the room today, whatever's weighing down your soul, whatever is put you in a quandary, whatever it is that, that's unanswered even, God wants to accomplish his purpose in your life through that and not keep you in the suffering but bring you to his glorious ideal. Christ in us, our hope of glory. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, Christ in you is your hope of glory. The incarnation. What great assurance and encouragement. I've experienced that assurance and encouragement for the past 32 years of my life. I became a believer when I was almost 20. So it's been 32 years. And God has given me immense encouragement and assurance in Christ. I hope that you experience that as well. I hope you have that. There is immense encouragement in Christ. This is what Peter is encouraging Christians who are suffering by, not by telling them, hey, you can do this, or here's some chicken soup for your soul, or whatever, and coming up with some of man's wisdom. No, he's saying, you put your mind, you put your eyes, you put your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory and his power and his authority. That's how you're going to get through what you're going through. Matthew chapter 9. I love Matthew chapter 9. Jesus has compassion on the multitudes. He sees the multitudes and he has compassion on them and it says it was because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But this was not the case for the, for the people that Peter was writing to. These were people who had a shepherd, but they were tempted to either ignore or forget that fact. Peter has been telling them that there's this chief shepherd. You know, when, when the chief shepherd appears, you're going to receive the unfading crown of glory. He's let them know in chapter 2, verse 25, he says, you were straying like sheep, but you have you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He's saying that your pastor and your elder is, over, is watching over your souls. Jesus, the Lord Jesus, he's your pastor, he's your elder, he's your shepherd. And so he's gonna tell these poor downcast souls who are attempted to either ignore or forget the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, that he was more than present in their lives that he's been victorious, that he is powerful, and that he is exalted forever, that he is in the position of, of supreme authority. This is what God wants you to know today, that whatever it is, whatever it is that is on your heart and on your mind and, and the troubles, we, we talk about our troubles sometimes as if they're, they're never gonna leave, and we will even say, when will I find relief? And what God wants you to know is that in Christ, who is more than present, God with us who saves, and he is more than able and more than willing to meet you right where you're at, to help you in your distress. This passage is highlighting these, these truths, this, this victory over sin and death, this power to save, this authority over all. And, and that's the first thing, the first thing we see is Christ's victory over sin and death. 
Sin, death, and hell, defeated by Jesus. He opened the way to God. Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. This is the substitutionary atonement. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one, the perfect one for lost sinners on their way to hell. And he did so so that we might be brought to God. He was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. He suffered. He died in our place. This, this, by the way, brings us back to the previous passage, verses 13 through 17. Peter has been telling them, who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. Don't have fear of them. Don't, Don't be troubled in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. Honor him as Lord, as holy, and be prepared always to make a defense for those who ask you for the hope that is within you. Do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Have a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And he ends with this word. It is better to suffer for doing good if it should be God's will than for doing evil. Have you ever suffered for doing good? You did the right thing. You obeyed the word of God and the power of the Spirit. You, you pleased God and then you suffered. You did the right thing. You were in line with God. You're aligned with him and you're like, I'm doing what God wants me to do. And you suffered for it. It's easy to get sidetracked in life, especially at a time like this in Christmas from the true meaning of Christmas. Why is it we have to fight so hard to keep Jesus in Christmas? A lot of Christians have a love-hate relationship with Christmas. They love what the Bible says about it and they hate what we've made it. I'm not sure how your life is going. You know, it's very quite possibly that you say, well, things are going too good right now. I'm not sure when the other shoe is going to fall. Maybe things are going too good for you. Maybe things, everything going your way, but what is probably closer to the truth and more prevalent for everyone is that you have troubles. And you can name them very clearly, and, and you even have periodic lapses into besetting sins, sins that you keep going back to, even though you know that Christ is victorious over sin and death and hell. You, you go back almost like a magnet to, to sins that are, are, are the ones that you keep repeating over and over again. You, you struggle with certain relationships and people in your life. You worry about how you're going to pay the bills or buy gifts or do whatever you're supposed to do that you don't have the resources for. You wonder how things are going to work out in your life. Something's uncertain. Something's not, not set. Something's not settled yet. And you're, you're mixed up about it. And you're not sure. And it could be that maybe you are living in such a way that, that you're, you're living in Christ through the troubles and you're being bold about the gospel and your life is, is a shining light for Christ and you're being persecuted for your faith in Christ. That you are being even harassed or, or marginalized or falsely accused. 
You're in good company if that's happening to you right now because the people that Peter was writing to, it was happening to them. In Peter's day, Christians were being accused of some heinous things. First and foremost, they were being slandered as haters of mankind. They said, Christians hate people because they would not go to the pagan feasts and and the pagan parties and festivals. Christians were called traitors of the state because they worshiped Jesus Christ as Lord. They didn't worship Caesar as Lord. They didn't worship the genius of the the emperor as everybody else did. And then probably the worst the worst charge against Christians, the false accusations were that they were immoral. The reason why is because in pagan eyes, their love for their brothers and sisters in Christ was thought to be immoral. It was rumored that they ate flesh and drank blood in their gatherings. You can see how someone could take the words the wrong way and twist them. You know how it is when you say something and someone takes it and says, no, you said this, you said that, and they accuse you of this or that, and you're like... I know my heart was right, and I didn't mean that. But they were rumored to eat flesh and drink blood at their meals, and that was thought to have come from babies that they had slaughtered. This is what Christians were being accused of, slandered for, all for their faith in Christ. So Peter is saying, in essence, you're suffering, but he suffered. You're suffering, but Jesus suffered. He's giving them a pep talk. He's giving them encouragement, exhortation, and he's saying, don't lose hope. Let the truth about Christ's suffering encourage you. That's what you need to do today. Don't lose hope. Let the truth of Christ's suffering and exaltation. Did you catch when I read this passage that the resurrection's in there? And that Jesus is highly exalted above everyone and anything? It says the righteous died for the unrighteous. Peter is reminding his his readers once again of Isaiah 53. He's gone there before, he goes there again. This time to verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Peter's point, of course, is that they're not just identifying with Jesus' suffering, you know, feeling good about feeling bad, but that it goes all the way through suffering to exaltation, and that God can bring glorious results out of seemingly horrible human situations. Peter has been telling them, don't be surprised, don't be discouraged by suffering. Christ triumphed. He didn't just die, he he rose again and now he's exalted at the right hand of God. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter has said that he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Here's the righteous one dying for the unrighteous so that we would become the righteousness of God in Christ. He was put to death in the flesh. I'm going to keep repeating it. I want you to note well that he was speaking of God incarnate. Jesus, the God-man, who without ceasing to be what he always was, God became what he was not before, man. And forever he will be 
the God-man. Christ was the perfect offering for sin. Hebrews 9 says that just as it was appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Romans 8.3 says that God has done what the law, weak as it was through the flesh, could not do. What did he do? It says he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh. Sin's been condemned. Sin's been paid for. The one you keep going back to, that's been paid for. You shouldn't go back to that one. It's dead. You should be dead to it. And by the way, Christ's victory over sin and death was planned before the foundation of the world. If you start wondering like, well, when did this thing get set in motion? Well, before the world began. In the uh, apostolic preaching, Acts chapter 2, Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Acts chapter 4, they're praying, and the believers are saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth. And they said, Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, get this, whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. 2 Timothy 1.9 says that he has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the world began. He's made alive in the Spirit. He was put to death in the flesh, and then, Peter says, he was made alive in the Spirit. Now, I know I told you that there were two tough parts of this passage. There's actually three. The spirit part is a little bit tough too. Some of your Bibles have a capital S for spirit. Some have a lowercase s. And you're like, is this the Holy Spirit? Is that what this is talking about? Or is it Jesus' eternal inner person? Which one? Well, it's a reference to Jesus' eternal inner person, not the Holy Spirit. Christ's eternal spirit has always been alive. Although his earthly body was then dead. But three days later, his body was resurrected in a transformed eternal state. So this phrase, made alive in the Spirit, refers to the life of Jesus' Spirit, not the Holy Spirit. It's a contrast between what happened to his flesh, his body, and what happened to his Spirit. His Spirit was alive, his flesh was dead. Some think that made alive in the Spirit means he got resurrected. But you'd have to say, you know, made a, made, put to death in the flesh and made alive in the flesh for that to be true. Peter makes the point Christ was physically dead, but his spirit was alive. And then verse 19. In which, in the spirit, in his eternal spirit, he went and proclaimed to the, the spirits in prison. Preaching to spirits in prison. There are a couple views that are actually plausible, and some that are so crazy you just have to ignore them and throw them out immediately. Jesus wasn't going and preaching a second chance for salvation to anyone who died. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. 
So what are we talking about when we say preaching to spirits in prison? Who did Jesus preach to and when? And what did he say? What was being preached? Well, in 1 Peter 3.19, Peter is stating that Christ preached to spirits in prison. Now look at verse 20 with me. It says that those spirits in prison were formally disobedient. They formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So when? In the days of Noah. That's when this happened. The preaching happened in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, that's 120 years. So there was preaching going on for 120 years in which a few in the ark, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight people were saved through the flood. And God is using this as an example of something very significant. Now, some people, now I'm going to give you two views, and I believe the second view I give you is the one that I think is most plausible and the most satisfying. But the first view would be that people think that Jesus went to hell in his spirit while his body was in the grave before his resurrection to announce his victory over human beings or to fallen angels. There are, there, you can piece together some biblical evidence for that view. But I believe the other explanation better fits the context. It's that verse 20 especially seems to indicate that the spirit of the pre-incarnate Christ was preaching through Noah in the days of Noah to the people who weren't repenting as he was building the ark. There is some good support for this in the context of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 11. He talks about how the Spirit of Christ was, was speaking to the prophets and how they made careful search and inquiry, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Noah was preaching righteousness with God through faith in his promised Redeemer. Noah and his preaching was falling on deaf ears. Eight people got saved through that flood. Everyone else perished. So the, those who were saved were few. Those who perished were many. So the idea here is that the Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah in the days of Noah to those who were disobedient to this preaching of righteousness. They weren't repenting. I believe that's the most satisfactory explanation of these verses. It says in verse 20, they formally didn't obey because God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah. What was his patience waiting for? It would have been for repentance that wasn't coming. It didn't come. Romans 2.4 says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a day coming. It's interesting that it says they did not obey. It's related to the word disbelief, in fact, the active manifestation of disbelief is disobedience. And the Greek word there means to persuade. They weren't persuaded. They weren't caused to believe. They were introduced to the truth and they didn't receive the truth. And it's interesting that it, it, it is related to the meaning of the word obey, the result of persuasion. 
The interesting thing that you want to know is that in, in the Bible, obedience includes faith. Romans 1.5 says the obedience of faith refers to that. The interesting thing you want to know is that in the New Testament, the word group translated disobey and disobedience doesn't stand in contrast to obedience, but to faith. Because the disobedient are unbelieving. The big point in this verse here is that God wanted repentance from them, but they didn't repent. Hebrews 10 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What is that fire? Quite simply, it's the fire of hell. I don't think we really think that people are going to hell. I think that we talk ourselves out of that one all the time and we say, but they're such a good person and they've done so many kind things for other people and and they're just so pleasant to be around. There's no way that their soul could actually be in jeopardy for rejecting the finished work of Christ on the cross. I don't think we truly believe that, that, that lost people are going to hell. A couple of brothers in Christ and I, David Paredes is one of them. Yesterday we were sharing, and, and Brian Bush, we were sharing uh, the gospel with a Mormon guy. And we were talking about the shed blood of Christ and, and the death of Christ in our place, the substitutionary atonement. We were talking about the finished work of Christ and this person kept nodding in agreement as if, yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. Until a bold point of departure and it became very clear and I said to one of them afterwards I said you know this person and us we all knew what was going on we could play dumb if we want but he knew and we knew that we were not believing the same thing there was a huge gulf between us it became very obvious I don't think we truly believe that people that don't believe in the finished work of Christ in their place for their sins are really going to hell I think we get kind of lulled to sleep thinking that, again, people are nice people, people are good people, blah, 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 and and how far from the truth that is. There's one thing you won't be doing in heaven. You won't be preaching the gospel to unbelievers in heaven. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. I've got a friend, Jeff Scherfe, who was an L.A. County sheriff And he's a bold witness for Christ. He has a a ministry in the prisons where he goes and preaches to the inmates. And then he also goes and passes out lots of gospel cards to people and engages them in conversation. And there's something else he's begun to do. He's going to the the local uh, marathons and half marathons and 10Ks and 5K races. And he goes and he sets up two speakers and a big sign, in big letters, the sign says, Christ. I know many of you are thinking, oh, he's crazy. No, he's passionate about telling people about the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. And he's found a way that works for him in the context God has put him. Yesterday, he was at the Santa Monica Venice Christmas run. And he said, he goes, people were open to the word of God. 
I think people are very hungry for the word of God. Plenty of people don't want to hear the word of God, but there are plenty of people who put their heads on their pillows at night and say, what does my life count for? They say, I don't have any hope. They say, everything I've been trying doesn't work. Jeff boldly puts himself on the line because he believes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In fact, I'm going with him to a race coming up in Orange County soon. If you'd like to go with us, we'd love to have you. We're going we're gonna to share the gospel with people. You say, oh, oh, that doesn't work. Well, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. You do what you do. Let people do what they're going to do with the gospel. Don't go, oh, just dismiss it because it just seems so far out there. I like his boldness. You know what he said to me yesterday? I saw him yesterday, and he said, it's like I'm picking up a handful of sand, and I'm sharing Christ with all these people, and I'm, I'm picking up a handful of sand, and the sand is just dri- dropping through my fingers, and, and I think of all the sand on all the shores of every sea. He's like, it's just, the, the task is unfathomable. And he's like, but I've got, I've got people I'm sharing Christ with. The gospel, and there's people responding to the gospel. You know why? Because Christ has been victorious, and he has the power to save. That's the second thing you see in this passage, by the way. Christ has the power to save. But look, here's what you should do. You preach the gospel. Wherever God puts you, boldly preach Christ's victory over sin and death and hell. Because you don't know when a person's going to die. We've all heard of sudden death experiences where people just die on the spot. I love 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Triumph. Victory in Christ. He's leading us in victory in Christ. It says that he, through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Jeff could get into places we can't get into. You can get into places I can't get into. You know that just the group gathered here right now, think of the web and the network of thousands upon thousands of people that we know. And many of them are waiting for us to tell them our hope. They're hungry for the hope in Christ and they don't even know it. They're looking everywhere for stuff. And it's all coming up short. I love it. The end of 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 says, we are an aroma of Christ. Do you love that? Aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Both groups. To the one, an aroma of life. To the other, a stench of death. Christ has the power to save. That's the next thing we see in this passage. Look at verse 21. Now, I know it begins with baptism, but let's take it as, it as it is right now. Let's just read it. Baptism now saves you. I agree with that, by the way. I agree that baptism saves you. I've got your attention. I love it. I just got some good eye contact. I believe that baptism saves you. There are two baptisms in the Bible, by the way. There's water baptism, 
which doesn't save you. You must reject every insinuation that water baptism saves you in any way because it does not. In fact, Peter knew that this was going to be an issue. The Holy Spirit knew that this was going to be an issue because look what he says. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body. Not water baptism. But, here's the baptism. An appeal to God for a good conscience. What's that mean? That's code word for becoming a believer by believing the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. It's, it's, it's code word for call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. It's code for believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It's the gospel we preach. Baptism doesn't save you. Water baptism doesn't save you. But your baptism into Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion, I'm memorizing 1 Peter. I think I've told you this. It's getting tougher and tougher. My brain cells are going one way and my memorization's going the other. I'm like, wow, this is tough, but it's beautiful. And here's how Peter starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. There's a baptism that you need, sprinkling with Christ's blood. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You go under the blood, you, you, you go to Jesus for, for refuge. Why did Jesus come to earth? Why is he God incarnate? 1 Timothy 1.15 says it's the trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance. Everyone should agree with this, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Mark 10, 45, Matthew 20, 28, he came as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He came to call sinners, Luke chapter 5. He came to give sight to the blind, John chapter 9. He, he says in John 12, I'm light to the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, spiritually. Matthew 10, he came to bring a sword, he says. Strife and division caused by true allegiance to Jesus. He came to save people from divine condemnation, from God's wrath for sin, John chapter 3. And John chapter 3, he came to give us eternal life. He saves. You reject any suggestion that, that water baptism saves you. You are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Peter says in Peter 1.3, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You say, but wait a minute. He's just talking about Noah. He's talking about the ark. He's talking about the flood. Are you sure we're not talking about water baptism here? And some people are going to go there, and I believe that it, it, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of full identification with Christ by faith. It's because the ark was the salvation for those eight people. Jesus is the ark. The flood was the judgment on the whole world. The water was the judgment. The ark was the salvation. Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the vehicle of salvation. Only Jesus saves you. There is no other name given among men by which, by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Acts 4.12. It should be very clear to us. Call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Be on the winning team. Cry out to God for mercy. Everyone who ca calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So baptism saving you means baptism into or coming to faith in Christ, being born again by the Holy Spirit, immersed in Christ, sprinkled by his blood. And what you have is salvation. And what you have is the power of God. I think we've done, let's talk about water baptism for a moment though. I think we've done the body of Christ a disservice by downplaying water baptism because we know it doesn't save you. But we, we, address, we address it this way. If you want to get baptized, go on ahead. That's not how Peter and his people address baptism. You come to faith in Christ, boom, you're baptized. You're identifying with Christ publicly. You're, you're, it's symbolic of his death, burial, and resurrection. I think we made a mistake as a church about a month ago. We put in the bulletin, if you want to get baptized, get baptized on December 7th. What today? What's today? December 7th? Huh, there's no water up there because we canceled the baptism. Now, we did have one person getting baptized. But since it was my own son, I said, hey, son, I need to talk to my friends about a few things. How about if we baptize you on the 21st of December when you're home from college for Christmas? He says, awesome, Dad. So good, I get to talk to my friends now. I have some disobedient friends. Let me talk to you about this. Check the bulletin for a minute. What does it say? Ryan, what does it say in there about baptism? Can you just, let's just see what it says. At the top of the middle section, what does it say about baptism right there? Do you need to be baptized? Oh, so I don't want to be baptized anymore. Like, if you want to. No, do you need to be baptized? I don't care if you want to. Jesus doesn't care if you want to. I'm serious. Here's why. Peter starts his letter by saying, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You're saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I got all authority in heaven and on earth. Go therefore make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't get baptized to get saved. You get baptized because you get saved. That's the first step of obedience to Jesus. So a lot of you are going to get baptized on the 21st of December. If you are a believer in Jesus and you have not been baptized, you're, obe- you're disobedient to Jesus. You're like, ah, come on, it's just a little choice. No, it's not. You can't, if you can't obey that command, who says you want to obey any other commands of Jesus? I'm just saying. But I don't want to get in the water because when my hair gets wet, everyone laughs at me. Oh, I'm, in, I'm nervous in front of people when I get wet in water. You've never been to the beach? You've never been to the pool? Please, just get up there on the 21st and do it. Why? To obey Jesus. For the blessing that comes with obedience. Because he saved your soul and, and then he says, and you should identify me with me in this way. If, if you have not been baptized, I hope you're convinced now that you need to be if you're a believer. If you're an unbeliever, we call you right now to faith and repentance. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Then get baptized. You can get baptized on the 21st. But if you're a believer, we call you to obedience to Christ. Faith and repentance and obedience. So I want you to plan now to boldly speak of Christ in all your Christmas gatherings. You could also consider inviting an unbelieving friends and relatives to your baptism on 1221, where they're going to hear your testimony of the grace of God in your life. You say, well, I'm from out of town. Run home then and have your pastor baptize you when you get home. 
We see Christ's authority over all. If he's our authority, verse 22, then we want to do what he says. We're like, hey, we want to do whatever the Bible says, but, but not that thing. Again, baptism is a little thing compared to a lot of the other things Jesus says you should do and need to do. We see Christ's authority over all, verse 22. You know what it says in verse 21? Jesus Christ. Man, do we get inoculated by, by the term Jesus Christ. Before I was a believer, I used his name in vain all the time. But Jesus is the sweetest name I know. I love the name of Jesus. What does his name mean? Savior. It means Savior. What does Christ mean? Anointed one. The Messiah. And he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The place of all honor and authority. And all things have been subjected to him. That's what when it says, with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him, that just means he's over everything. Everything. Aren't there so many things in life to get worked up about? You know, work up a sweat over. So many things in life that we could just get all worked up about. But I'll tell you what, the big deal, the really big thing that deserves all your time and energy and, and passion and focus and attention is what Peter's talking about. That someone righteous paid for your sins to bring you to God. That through his death and resurrection, you've been made clean by his blood. Wow. That he is at the right hand of God, the place of supreme honor and authority, and his name is Jesus Christ. Get worked up about him. There's none higher, none greater, none more powerful. And as a result, it's the great privilege of the elect to humbly and confidently and victoriously live and witness for Jesus and the gospel. That's what we're all about. That's what we should all be about. Okay, the worship team's gonna come back up and I'm gonna wrap up this non-Christmassy Christmas message, okay? Next week we'll be in Matthew 1 and and we'll look at Luke 2 and all that. But I'm going to end with three don'ts. You're like, I came to church to hear don'ts? Yeah, three of them. Okay, here they are. They're based on Christ's victory, power, and authority. Number one, don't walk in defeat. When your great shepherd, when your pastor and elder, the one who was put to death in the flesh, has risen in victory, don't walk in defeat. Trust God with your whole life and your family's life and your friend's life. Trade in your old, beat-up, run-down, junker, downer of a mindset for the new clothes of a Christian that God gave you when you were saved. Peace, love, joy in Christ. Number two, don't cower in fear or lack of confidence in God's power and ability to do far more than you could ask or think. You boldly storm the throne of grace and, and present all your requests to God. And number three, don't waste the multitude of Jesus-focused gospel opportunities before you at such a time like this, this blatantly alley-oop time of year that God has given us at the holiday season known as Christmas. Everywhere you go, Go in the authority of Christ and with the authority of his word. And if your interactions and your attempts to bring Jesus into the conversation aren't making you a bit uncomfortable, then you're probably playing it too safe. 
Lord God, we want to focus on Christ's victory and power and authority. Lord, you want us to see a greater picture of a greater purpose by focusing on your greatest purpose accomplished through suffering. So Lord, we lay all of our troubles before you. And we pray that you would, you would do with us and with, with all of that your miraculous, your miraculous wonders and that you would bring the greatest glory out of the humanly most horrible things. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being God with us. Amen.